evening. Thanks for being here tonight. Gus had uh, asked if I would pinch hit, I guess, while he was gone, and in effect, uh, he's given me a mulligan <laughs> from <laughs> from when I've tried this in the past. But hopefully, our um, our time together tonight will be profitable. And so, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for who you are and for your goodness, your thoughts that are toward us are always having our best interest in mind. Ultimately, your honor and glory is in view. We pray that uh, as we would consider some of the things that we find in your word, that your spirit could direct with our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. We thank you now in Christ's name, amen. So, um, I generally like to have quotes. Um, I know just even in my own personal um, studies, um, I, I just find it fascinating. There's... Uh, you can get books. There's Bible software I have, one of which is called uh, Draper's Book of Quotations. It's Christian um, authors. And uh, I was, uh, I use one, it's my favorite poem. I think it's profound. Oh, why should the spirit of a mortal be proud? It's by William Knox. And it was Abraham Lincoln's favorite poem and uh, it's profound if you I have copies if you want I can you know <clears throat> make some copies and uh, you, you can maybe look it up online but one of the things that he says in there is that uh, the thoughts that I think have already been thought um, Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun so I, uh, I'm disclaiming originality here, but as you can see by on the screen there, Psalm 8:35, or excuse me, 8 verses 3 through 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I was uh, talking with Valerie a little bit, and, you know, it's interesting because Peter says there are things relative to Christ, his work in us, man, the man made after his own image, in the likeness of God made he him, um, and there, there are things relative to salvation in the gospel. Which things the angels, actually I don't think it's Peter, it's Hebrews chapter 1, excuse me, but which things the angels desire to look into. So that should give us pause. You know, uh, what exactly, uh, this, this is pretty, pretty special. He that has made the image of God must know him or be desolate. Never met George MacDonald. In fact, he died a while ago. <laughs> met Ronald, though. In fact, I even 
I think I ate, <laughs> ate there once or twice, but anyway, we can never know who or what we are till we at least know something of what or who God is. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. Um, so, let's see, we've got to get the clicker going here, I guess. So, here's the, the million dollar question. And um, I would venture to guess that most of you in this audience know the answer to this question. The chief end of man is what? You could paraphrase that and just ask, what's the purpose? Why did God make man? So here's a hint. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, referred to it uh, already. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You can see a bolded R and R. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female. He created them. And spoiler alert, I guess, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not primarily, the answer to this question is not primarily about us. It's about God and his desire to have relationship or fellowship with man. Carol and I were talking last uh, Wednesday evening, and I was trying to give her a little bit of a sneak preview of what I was up to. Uh, you know, that's bolded relationship. And there's two, in my mind anyway, fundamental um, axiomatic truths, I guess I like to call them, or, or uh, principles regarding to the answer to the question, why did God make man? What, and what is the chief end of man? And the hour that's hinted at in, uh, well, it's the fact of God. And, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to get into different things, but what's interesting is of all religions, all theologies, philosophies, the Judeo-Christian, I guess you'd, if you want to call, you know, the Judaism before Christ on the cross, even though the... The Hebrew, obviously, uh, the Jewish scriptures were um, that which the, the Hebrews were the ones who God entrusted his word to, and they, right from the get-go, point to um, explaining and answering this question, and it points to relationship. But what Carol and I were talking about is, um, you know, we've probably heard many of us in this room where, you know, um, Pastor Leonard used to say, God made man for fellowship. And that's true. I like to say, and Carol pretty much agreed with me, uh, that God made man for relationship. Fellowship is the goal, but fellowship is one of those deals that's not guaranteed. Fellowship implies communion or like-mindedness. And so, 
he made man in his image, our, I guess I kind of got off track there, our with the different theologies that are out there, only the Christian, Judeo-Christian Bible and theology has this relationship that always has been and eternally was. There was never a time where the Godhead didn't exist and the triune God. In fact, I, I heard somewhere quite a while ago that Islam has a real problem with this because they have Allah in their theology, one God, and then Muhammad and whatever else is, you know, the prophet. But if, and Eric's been going through the attributes of God, I've really enjoyed that. Because at the end of the day, if God made man for this relationship, wouldn't it kind of be important to figure out a little bit uh, about who this God is? Who are you having the relationship with? I mean, what kind of relationship do you have with a complete stranger? (laughs) Certainly not, you know, not, or even worse, for one that you're estranged with. Not very deep, not very intimate, you know, not, not real, you know. So what, what does uh, Islam do with love? You've got the eternal God, you have eternal attributes. Who does, who does Allah love in eternity past? Himself? <laughs> God loves eternally and perfectly, but guess what? His love isn't narcissistic. It's always about others, and love has to have an object. First Corinthians 13 talks about how love doesn't seek its own. You know, it's others-oriented. Anyway. So, it's primary, this, this, uh, the answer to this question, what is the chief end of man? It's not primarily about us. It's about God and his desire to have relationship, fellowship, ultimately with man, uniquely and eternally expre- expressing his glory in the people created for that relationship with him. Always, 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 at the end of the day, God and his glory is the pinnacle. It it just is. It's one of those axiomatic truths. And, you know, the eternal God, so God was, he is, and he will be glorified. And there is nothing that you or I can do to ultimately detract from that. We are invited to participate with him in that. That, but it's his deal. So, anyway. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. And I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Isaiah 43, 7. slide to move here. That's what I get for 
staying on one slide too long. Well, Houston, we do have a problem. Any, okay, here comes Johnny to the rescue. I'll keep rolling here while he gets this figured out. So the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man or man's principal purpose? It's found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I, you know, probably seen that before. I, I guess I didn't know the answer to where it was found. The answer being man's chief end is to glorify God. And then it goes on to say, and to enjoy him forever. What happened? What would you do? Thank you. So I imagine um, it would be good to have a definition. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I started to look at... <laughs> uh, Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries and so forth. And you can get really, really deep into the weeds on trying to unpack this. And I'm not going to say there's no value in it. It's way beyond the scope of my little noodle or this evening. Um, so. So it says that the, uh, this is a simple definition it's a verb used with an object. Well, Carol knows all about that. She's the, the grammar, grammarian. Uh, to cause to be or treat as being more splendid, excellent, etc., than would normally be considered. To honor with praise, admiration, or worship, extol. To make glorious, invest with glory. To praise the glory of God, especially as an act of worship. So, you know, I saw that and I thought, well... It wasn't satisfying enough. I, I honestly think there, it's a little, it involves a little more than that, so I just have a little note. Glorifying and worshiping God is more than simply what we think or say, though that is certainly part of it. It involves who we are, what God has invested us with of himself. If, you know, Take away from tonight one of the key axiomatic principles. It's about God. There is nothing in and of ourselves that we can add to the glory of God, so to speak. We can participate and cooperate with him in that ultimate end, and in that he is glorified in us. So I'm not saying there's no value in who we are, what we are, you know, the things we do, say, etc. Um, but I know in my own study, and I think I appreciate that with uh, the teacher that we have now. I know Mike Lehman, the elder Lehman, Pastor Weefel, others, um, they're really good at chasing things down to, to consider the source. Chase it to its its root. And that'll help understand and and uh, give context and perspective to some of the things that are, quite frankly, um, sometimes, you know, we don't have a handle on. So, anyway, 
Um, so what God, so start over. Glorifying and worshiping God is more than simply what we think or say, though that is certainly part of it. It involves who we are, what God has invested us with of himself, and who, what or who he wants us to become. As a result, which of course includes the things we do. So the things we do are part of it. I remember a quote I looked for, <clears throat> for it, couldn't find it, um, and it had to do with worship. And uh, the whoever this quote is from said something on the order that if worship is just something you do or we do, eh, we're kind of missing missing it. Worship, in effect, should be um, the only thing we do. Got to think about that a little bit. So, now, here we come to uh, something that I've been noodling on, you know, and the thing is, uh, let's be honest, when it comes to things having to do with God and who he is, his nature, and then, um, like I think we saw in that quote uh, at the beginning, you know, uh, until until we get a glimpse of who God is, we can't even begin to understand truly who we are, our place in the universe. All right? So, you know, obviously, um, it's difficult. These are ineffable things. They're things that are hard to describe, and they're hard, they're hard to understand, let alone describe. So, I'm trying to work with me on this. <laughs> Anyway, so we have this little diagram that I uh, that I noodled in the course of time, principally in the last I don't know, maybe since last spring or something. And I don't know if it needs to be copyrighted yet, but you guys can let me know what you think when we're done. Um, and the fact of the matter is, sometimes it just helps to have a visual, at least in my mind. To, um, to help work through some of these concepts, especially, you know, as I mentioned, ones that are difficult for us naturally because we just don't naturally get it. We need help, and we have a helper who has provided right here what we need to know certainly more than I'll ever understand in my lifetime. It's the eternal word. Um, and the fact is, I would venture to guess not exhaustive. One of the things that I find compelling about God and eternity is that you're never going to be bored with the Lord, so to speak. There's always going to be a fascination with him. And so there are layers upon layers, and you can go both ways. You know, I was thinking about math. I'm not a mathematician. Maybe Eric would be able to figure this out. 
we talk about infinity, and we, I always think in terms of going forward, right? But when you look at, and actually I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, you can shave that thing pretty fine, too. But we, in our little noodle, can only see so much, and we can only shave it so fine. But with God, <laughs> it's infinite in both directions. Anyway, sorry about that. That was probably a little esoteric. Um, so here I am with this diagram. Now, for the sake of anyone who might not have the benefit of seeing it, just picture in your mind piece of paper, horizontal axis with a half moon on either side to the right or left, above which there's a circle. The circle has a triangle surrounding uh, it. There's also a little circle on the inside of that, or excuse me, a little triangle on the inside of the circle. So you folks are going to know, you know, uh, if you're familiar with the triune God and we, we do this for Sunday school and whatever. This diagram actually started originally, I called it the dial. And I, I think you'll figure that out. Uh, and it kind of morphed and grew from there. Anyway. Um, so, keeping in mind our premise, right, that the chief end of man is to glorify God, it might be good to ask, what can we know of him and who is this God? who made man in his image with relationship with himself in view. So who is the God? You know, what's he like? The one who made man with relationship of himself in view. It is also important, a non-negotiable axiomatic truth, that we all can truly know about God, who he is, and particularly concerning his person and character is only found in the word, I already dropped that ball when I got ahead of myself. I should just follow the outline. Thank you. <clears throat> and then furthermore, I imagine that most of the people in this, uh, in this audience know this. You know that everything we can know about God, we're going to find here, right? And we, have, we need, have need of the divine tutor, the one who authored this. So the natural man doesn't get the things of the Spirit of God, and neither can he know them, we're told in what? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It takes spiritual discernment. So, the, but the point is, is, you know, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Because, oh, well, we, we know all about, you know, we're familiar, we've seen this. In fact, the gospel, for example, uh, how often... You hear the gospel, and there's a richness to the gospel that is beyond the First Corinthians 15, 1 and 3 narrative, which we know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But the depth and the richness of that, and how that's connected to the love of God, for example, and then the love of God... Uh, 
is what Paul prays for in, I don't know, help me out, uh, is it Ephesians 3 where he says he prays that those believers would know the breadth and height and length and depth and to understand and not just hear cognitively, but as a real, it is real, but real for them, you know, in their heart and mind, in their lives. The love of Christ, where is that reflected? In the gospel, which surpasses knowledge. I'm having a heck of a time even talking about this stuff, you know. I am a man of unclean lips. (laughs) That's what, was it Aaron that said, or no, Moses said that, I don't know. Anyway, so the point is, is, um, you know, we need to understand the value and the richness of the Word of God for ourselves. Um, and the fact that God has esteemed His Word above His very name, that, uh, Psalms 138.2, that should give us pause. So, so, um, as far as the diagram goes, you see, what did we add here? We added the fact that God is overall and eternally present. That's above the triangle, the circle. And that God is supporting and upholding all. So God is supporting and over and supporting all in every respect and sphere. Okay? Therefore, know this day. Ah, look at that. I even have it. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God. In heaven above and on earth beneath, there is no other. Deuteronomy 4.39. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain... Well, that's an interesting concept. If, uh, if, if we wanted to sit on that for a while, we could. This material, I was talking with Pastor uh, Gus, and, you know, he's saying, well, what are you thinking, you know? And the uh, fact is, <laughs> way, way more than in over my head as far as how to even manage or navigate th- this idea that, you know, what does it mean, the chief end of man, to glorify God? What's that all about? And he said, well, you've got enough there for five messages. Yeah. So, true confessions, you know, guilty of trying to stuff 10 pounds in a five-pound bag. All right, we'll do the best we can. And it's probably, you know, going to require more than one session. But I was thinking to myself, I have reams of notes. And it's like, well... Five. <laughs> You've got all of eternity that will never exhaust the glory of God. So our challenge is how can we bring that down from a uh, 30,000 foot view, you know, from the real high? How can we drill that down? to where we live and breathe, where we move, where we are. 
I, I, uh, I like these catchwords sometimes, and I use them, uh, and then I'll repeat them, because, you know, whatever. I'll grab onto this, uh, and uh, drives Denise nuts. Poor gal, pray for her, you know. And uh, So, granular. Granular. So, when I'm thinking about this, and with this diagram, the point here is is to kind of illustrate, and, and, and then there's supporting scripture that, you know, I didn't invent this. Um, it's just something that I've been noodling. Well, um, let's see here. I think I have a little something here that's missing, but the fact is, is that um, um, okay, here we are. So I suppose I could have included the concept of God as all in all uh, in the diagram. Since he, according to Colossians 1, 16 and 17, is the glue of the universe, and by him all things consist, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. There you see it, above and below, so to speak, visible and invisible, doesn't matter what sphere. You know, we're, we're familiar with three spheres. Um, the Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the things of man that which he has prepared specifically for those who love him because responding to his love via responding to the personal work of Christ in the gospel, that is the door. When Christ said, and that's another reason why this treasure that we have in earthen vessels, this richness of the gospel should never get old, and it should never, ever, ever be far from our heart or our lips in terms of who and what we're about. Never. Um, I'm getting off script, but... um, So, three dimensions? How do I know? I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't want to get off uh, again in some esoteric or... Three dimensions, we're familiar with that. Yeah, I'll spare you, although I have refined it. Um, years ago, I did something at camp. It was the man-in-the-box presentation that uh, Dr. Hedges, the man who led me to the Lord, veterinarian, Ph.D. geneticist, brilliant man, but it was his love for the Lord that captured me. It was his knowledge of the Word that he used that the Spirit of God uses to move us from darkness to light, the gospel of his dear Son. And uh, so, uh, who knows what the dimensions are? The man in the box, you, you draw, there's two dimensions. So maybe sometime if, uh, if I get invited back, uh, that, you know, or even for college age, I used to do it uh, in my porch uh, or young people's Eric or something camp. But there, uh, you can go a lot of places with that concept of the man in the box and how 
All he can do is explore and examine his own broken, fractured world in that two dimensions. And Dennis, you made him. You drew him. You're the God that made this two-dimensional dude. And all he sees is the reflection of his own broken image. And then there's the the latter, Romans 1 through 3, about how he's trying to get out of the box and he has, you know, he can experience, he can be the immoral man, the moral man, and the religious man who looks down as the moral man, the moral... Anyway, it's, it's vanity, it's empty, it's pointless. There's no hope. He can't get out of that condition. Ah, then God enters his world, the two-dimensional world, and he could shake his fist at you. Dennis and say, no way, Jose, I don't believe there's a God. Doesn't matter, you created him. His ignorance is, doesn't uh, abrogate the fact, you know, your reality. So there again, the gospel, Christ, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, the life. You enter through that door, and you know, the fact of the matter is, and I've had this conversation sometimes quite frankly you meet people who you're engaging in conversation and uh, they may or may not be Christian so it may have a little uh, believer already it may have a little flavor then with one who is a Christian but maybe they don't fellowship with anybody maybe they're saved but it doesn't mean much to them they're not enjoying the richness of this so great salvation and um, what I like to you, what I found very useful that people can identify with is I could say, you know what, Curtis, your path is different than my path. All right? Dave, your path is different than my path. Walt, your path is different than my path. Marsha, your path is different than my path. But guess what? The whole point is God made man for fellowship ultimately to glorify himself and so it doesn't matter what the the minutia of your path we're going to look at this diagram and and I can refer and I'll, I'll be done I'll just talk about it now and then re- refer back to it the fact is from the get-go creation Adam our federal head Adam and Eve, our forefathers, or parents. Uh, Relationship, made man for relationship. So, each along the way, as you look at history, his story, each on this line, right? It's a different era, it's a different age, it has different challenges, different... uh, you know, realities in terms of the time that they live, but there's never a time where that changes, that fact that God made man for fellowship, for relationship. So obviously the path is different for each one, just even the time they were born. We're here for such a time as this. We're here right now, at this time, in this place. Right? So... Regardless of the path, if your path, which is designed to bring you into relationship with him, he is calling, 
He's calling. If Christ is lifted up, and he was, you know, he is. Specifically on the cross, I think in that John passage, uh, you know, if I remember it's in John, but um, the fact of the matter is he is calling us. He is inviting each one of us into relationship with himself. The point being is, is that he knows what it takes for you and I to be moved into proximity, as Gus would say, into that relationship, to grow and grow more into that relationship. It starts with the door. You've got to come to the door. So if your path leads you to some other doorstep, then you've missed the point. It's, you've been led astray. So, anyway, I don't know. I, I rambled on there. Sorry about that. So, point is, is that um, if we're going to look at the, um, the 30,000 foot view, we're going to look at uh, things that Eric has gone through. So, for example, we'll say attributes. Again, keeping in mind that, that what we're trying to do here is kind of get a handle on who is this God that, that we're dealing with? What's he like? Who is it with whom we have to do? So you could put the omnis, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. You can put immutable, he doesn't change. Um, he's eternal, E.T., and he's also eternal life. I don't know if that's a separate deal. Uh, veracity, he's truth. He does, God is not a man that he can lie and so forth. You know, um, immutable, oh, I have that one. I guess I put him, okay. Point is that, that the attributes, again, what we find only here, exclusively, um, they tell us a little bit about what God's like. Now, I'm not going to say that that will take you um, as deep. Well, there are certain aspects. Maybe I should back off on that. Because if you look at love, that love is a big deal there. Because that love, Paul says, the love of Christ is what draws him it it uh it draws him the love of christ compels or constrains and it controls him it controlled him anyway i digress so what we're doing here then is we're um we're considering the just the attributes as part of what god this is the thirty thousand foot view all right then we're going to try and and drill down eventually, you know, and the gospel of his son ultimately is, is where it's at. And, and I have, you'll see here, I have this um, on this diagram, the cross is in the middle between the east or the west, you know, the right and left side of this. That's intentional. This isn't designed to be a, a dispensational chart or some kind of a chronological deal. Uh, 
Why is the cross there in the center? Because the cross is the central focal point of time and eternity. Paul said, I don't want to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Corinthian church had a whole lot going on. That's another message um, relative to, to the cross. So, um, the, um, the point with the, where, where it was before is that the preeminence of Christ is, is in view here when we're talking about glorifying God. And Colossians passage, passage that says all things were created by him and for him, visible, invisible, in heaven and earth. He is before him, and by him all things consist. He's the glue of the universe. He is above and below. He is overall and eternally present, and he is supporting and upholding all. And, as you see by what I added, right, why, you know, I just got to keep moving. This thing don't want to work again. So the previous slide, I, I might, is the battery out? John? Well, the previous slide didn't have the alpha and the omega. So those spheres, you know, it's not just in, in, um, in space, you know, but it's also in time, and time's an oxymoron for God. How do you encapsulate the eternal with time? It ain't going to happen. So with this slide here, we know from Revelation 1.8 and 22.13, which are bookend chapters of that book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Um, and it makes sense about it if you look at the diagram. The diagram has alpha and omega, and the EP is eternity past. The EF is eternity future. So, in Revelation 1.8 again, and chapter uh, 22.13, they're bookends of that last book of the Bible. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, and the first and the last. He is the be-all and end-all of his eternal universe. And again, which is sort of an oxymoron, since in what way would the infinite have an end? Don't think about that too hard. My brain hurts <laughs> sometimes when I try and think about this stuff. Just know that God's character as well as his attributes permeate the universe. What, what happened? What's that? Oh, I bumped into everyone. So, I want to do this, though. Where's my drawing? Okay. And then I'm going to have to move along, I'm sure. So I'm going to put character here. Now, his character is obviously revealed in his attributes. But there are aspects of his character which are, I, I, I can't say beyond his attributes, because his attributes are all encompassing and they permeate all of God, who God is. Um, but I would just go so far as to say that his character 
uh, is essential to who God is. And they permeate the universe. Um, so, I got two slides going here. I'm going to jump. So, you see this? So, here we have, you know, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, eternity, and it's bracketed now, right, by history, his story. I, I just, that's the way I talk and think about history. It's his story. I think it was Pastor Leonard, I heard first this, uh, where he said that history was God's, un the unfolding of God's plan or purpose for the ages. I think that's pretty good. So it's his story. And because it's his story, and he designed it, he intended it, part of his purpose and part of his plan, guess what? Time matters. Time matters. And I think I, um, I alluded to this earlier, but one of the, oh, I see, I should just follow the slide with the, ah, okay. One of the beauties and alluring things about God is that though there is a creator, creature, distinction, he is not pie in the sky distant. He not only created time and space, he enters it in history. And even in our soul and spirit where we live. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So, again, uh, you know, if we back up and we just look at these attributes and so forth and we look at eternity, it's like, okay, that's way beyond me, you know, the unapproachable God. Who should I say sent you, Moses said, I think, uh, or sent me? I am that I am. <laughs> Always what? Self-existent. Self-existent. That, that would be the way to look at him from that aspect. So, time matters. And because he is the author of time, time is related to eternity, and therefore, time matters. You've heard it said, make it count. That is never more true than in relation to the biblical concept of redeeming or buying up the time. Nothing and no time spent in fellowship with God is without value. It counts in the eyes of God, and in fact, all our moments, especially as his children, matter. Time matters and is linked to eternity, as are we. So I'm gonna, I'd like to linger here a little bit because... Uh, this is where we live and move and, and breathe. You know, we're, we're finite. And we are, for however long, we're here for such a time as this. This is where we are. This is where we live. Uh, Time-wise and, you know, even geographically. Um, so, time matters and is linked to eternity as are, as are we. He has placed eternity in our hearts. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11, I think I heard, first heard that from Charlie Clough. Um, our times are in his hands, Psalm 31.15.
how we live and die, wherever we may be, whether literally, physically, this place, um, geographically, you could say, or metaphorically, where you're at, quote-unquote, you've heard that, you know, that's just where I'm at. Well, okay, so where you're at mentally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. You know, it, we talk about, uh, I don't know where it is, um, maybe it's at the end of First uh, Timothy Thessalonians where he talks about um, being saved, the Apostle Paul, body, soul, and spirit. Comprehensive. It's the full meal deal. So regardless of where you're at, um, physically, literally, physically, or metaphorically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, in some way, shape, or form, that all relates to God and who he is. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. (laughs) When you consider... His awesomeness. Um, so there is a certain, you know, I'm a man, again, of unclean lips. You, you just fall prostate. Yes. Yeah. I always mispronounce that and get it goofed up with something else. But bow the knee, bend the knee. Um. And that should be our response, even when we think of these attributes, for example, um, or his character. You know, at the end of the day, it is well. It's all about him, and how am I responding to? It's all about him. Do I even want to know him? And then Leonard used to say, or I heard it first from him. I think God is more real than the air you breathe. Seriously. We talk to our kids, Sunday school, about the attributes of God, well and good. How real is that information? How real is what we find in the Word of God to us? The Word of God is uh, living and powerful, right? We're told that. To what end? It's transformative. It doesn't leave you in limbo or in in static, God finds us where we're at, but that doesn't mean that he wants us to stay there. You come to the door, you're, you know, you little man in the box who's in your own world and, you know, a t-shirt that I saw once, I I should, uh, I don't know if I should get it or not, maybe not. But it was one of these black and white t-shirts with a strict stick drawing. And the guy's sitting there, and it says, I live in my own small world. And then turn around, look at the back. But, but that's okay. Everybody there knows me. Sorry. <laughs> that may good for you, be good for you for now. Ain't going to work in eternity. Not going to work with God. You better have something more than living in your own small world, you know, Broaden your horizons, you know, get a glimpse of the Almighty, you know. And um, as far as it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, at the same time, and there was a quote I should have put on there, it was something to the effect that, you know, man is really a, 
uh, conundrum, that's not the word he used, but on the one hand, there's nothing more that he desires, whether he admits it or not, or needs to know. The absence of knowing God and who he is is desperately what he needs. So that should be the magnet, the attraction. And yet, at the same time, it's like those magnets, you get two of them, you put them together. When I was a kid, I used to do that, and they repel. And yet, at the same time, man is cutting and running. He's heading for the hills. What do you think Operation Cover-Up was all about in the Garden of Eden? Hiding from God. You know, to say nothing of their own effort to try and cover their sin and shame, their guilt, with their own efforts. You know, uh, who was uh, uh, their son who brought his own fruits, right? Took a substitute. Soul that sins, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It took an innocent substitute. Getting ahead of myself. Anyway, um, so time matters. Can't, can't reiterate that enough. The question is not, will be God glorified? He is inherently and internally glorious. The question, rather, is, is it possible for us for man to participate with or share in God's glory, the glory he invites us into? And if so, how? That's the million-dollar question. Oh, chief end of man is to glorify God? Really? How's that going to happen? Especially when you consider the distance between the man who is affected and twisted, tainted by the uh, the blight and the awfulness of sin, it, body, soul, and spirit, he's affected there. Blind man in the dark, stumbling. So how are you going to glorify God? You don't even know where the light switch is naturally. And the fact is, God came into the world, speaking of Christ, Right? The light came into the world. The world was made by him. And yet it knew him not. You don't have to turn on the darkness. You got to turn on the light. I don't have it within myself. I don't know. I'm not wired for sound. I, I got the wrong kind of current. DC, damned current. I need AC. I need acceptable current. Houston, we have a problem. Again, I'm getting off script. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, I apologize. So, what does that even look like? So, here we are. Um, now, I should have another slide here. Uh, okay, I can jump ahead there. Sure, I can. So, all right, so furthermore, in thinking of time matters, there are seminal moments throughout the course of history. So, for example, 
this would be a good place to look at this and fast forward to the slide. So, for example, um, okay. Thinking of time matters, there are seminal moments throughout the course of history. So, for example, if we go to this, we can say, this is what I was referring to, so I, I suppose I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But we could say creation, right? Right? God saw all that he had done, and it was good. It was good, not goo, good. That was a little, I thought that was kind of cute, you know, especially uh, with the worldview that says we are time plus chance. I'm reading a book that actually um, Faye had given or turned uh, Stephen Riley on to. And the title of the book is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I don't know if any of you folks have read that book has to be one of the best apologetics, bar none, that I've read. So well-researched and written. So you have creation, right? It was good, not goo. And then you have, probably not that long thereafter, it doesn't take us long to tie ourselves up in knots and move in the wrong direction. And of course there was help from the deceiver, the liar, and you know, I'm not going to get into the story of Lucifer and the fall, but it is a fascinating story. Um, and he's the usurper. And um, so, misery loves company, and Lucifer decides that, you know, God has this creature creation man who he's made in his own image and there's something about these folks that uh, probably he was a little jealous envied whatever whatever his motivation was but essentially the motivation was this and it's the same thing with the man who falls one of the fundamental tenets of okay what is sin if you said what is sin and, you know, sometimes, uh, particularly religion, whatever, they'll have a laundry list, and they'll have boxes, you, this, that, and that, and the other thing. And so religion will focus on, well, if you stop doing that and you just, you know, throw your booze down the drain and chuck your cigs and whatever, fill in the blank, doesn't matter. Uh, no, sin is self. Idolatry, it's putting me self, something else first. That's the essence of sin. How it reflects or manifests itself, what's the point? Again, consider the source. Chase it back to what are the essentials. And that'll help you discern whether a message is focusing on the externals or on you know, the, the fruit, if you will, or if it's striking at the root. I want a cure that's not going to be a Band-Aid. I need a cure that's more than just a Band-Aid. I need something that's going to solve the problem. Guess what? 
Look up the names of Christ. I think um, Mr. Narcunas, Chaz, he, uh, he had a little deal last winter, I think it was, with the young people, and uh, I think he had like 50 names of Christ. If you look up the names of Christ, wow, that's very, very interesting. One of which is the great physician. And who he is, you want to know who God is and his character? Hey, you look at the God-man, Jesus Christ, that would be a good place to start. So, the fall. Um, what's he say? Dying you shall die. The day you eat you'll die. God made man in his image. He has volition. He didn't make automatons and robots. We've heard that before. Um, and the effects of the fall for man and his world are all-encompassing and cannot be understated. The essence of which for man is that he became unrighteous and therefore guilty and disconnected from holy God and all he is. Here's key. I don't think it's in my notes. Um, the depravity of man permeates his being. The depravity of man permeates who we are. That's you, that's me, by nature. In Adam, all are afflicted. As a result of the affliction, as a result of the disease, you die. All die. What's death? Separation. In the Hebrew, right? We know that. Disconnect. How's that working out for you? You want to look back at, you know, who God is and his attributes. Hmm. How's that working out for you? So I'm going to come out ahead by disassociating myself, uncoupling myself, no longer having a link with the good, the glorious, the almighty, the perfect God of the universe? I don't think so. Bad idea. But we bought it, and you and I would have done the same thing. Romans 5.12, I don't need to quote it. You all know it. Sin entered the world, death by sin. There you go. Death is inherited and passed to all men. Uh, I think in John it says that, again, the light's coming into the world. And the world did not know him. It didn't receive him. And it says their evil deeds were just proof in the pudding. Guilty as charged. And interesting about the Gospels, you know, Christ and, and the narrative while he walked the earth, he had a way, talk about cutting to the chase. He said, if you thought about it, it's with the heart. The heart is the issues. The heart of man, from, from the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, whatever. Interestingly also, the very problem that's seated in the heart of man is also where the appeal is made. With the heart, man believes. Getting a hold of righteousness unto righteousness not his own 
the righteousness of God, the righteousness found in Christ. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who paid the sin, died for the sins of the world. That's where you're going to the cross. You're going to him, the one who didn't deserve to die, the one who paid the debt for that sin, and it's his righteousness that we stand in. Anyway, so the depravity of man, if you want to have uh, axiomatic principles that are fundamental, non-negotiable, and you can't, they're non-negotiable. They're, you know, this is part of the fundamental uh, theology for Bible-believing Christians, or at least it should be. And you'll spot a, a Mickey or a wooden nickel. You can tell just by what their view is of, of man. And if, oh, well, he's pulling himself up by his bootstraps and he's evolving and things are going to get better and we're, we're uh, you know, we're growing into this. Forget it. Dead end street ain't happening. In fact, uh, the farther we get away, you know, it's like, uh, remember the old ad, uh, Memorex, back when there were cassette tapes? Hey, Tony and Val just got a new uh, van. It's like showroom, 2005 model, 32,000 miles on it. Sweet. It has. I was really happy. And, and uh, Valerie says, yeah, Pastor Leonard, here we come. She wants to dig for some of the old tapes I have. Why? It's got a CD player and a cassette player. Don't find those that often anymore. No Bluetooth, though, but that can be fixed. Anyway, um, so the depravity of man permeates his being and is his nature from that point on. Houston, we have a problem. We really do. Right out of the get-go, from the start. So when you look at this, you could say, well, seminal moment, the fall, right? Good news, won't linger long here, but this is what we need to love in, uh, in every respect is that history, his story, doesn't end there. Genesis 3 tells the promise of a righteous Satan crusher who will make things right between God and men. So, there you go. So now we have the Proto-Evangelion, it's been called, the promise of a redeemer, right? God in history, history, his story, time matters. It matters not just as the record that we have. Guess what? Here we are for such a time as this. This place, this time, do you think God didn't know about all the other intangibles, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually? You bet he does. Is he omniscient or not? He knows our thoughts from afar. I was going to go through and um, I just knew I didn't have enough time Carol had done the Psalm 139, and uh, it's, yeah, maybe uh, we can fly through it, but I can't do justice to it. But you talk about what's in, you know, what an awesome, awesome portion of Scripture. So, um, so the fi- finally, the seminal event, which is alluded to in the, in the uh, 
the seminal event of time in all of history is right here. The focal point of history and eternity and central to God's glory and man's glorifying him, what's that? The cross. And actually, um, I like to use the verse. I don't know, you know, contextually if it's exactly, you know, I, I haven't exegeted it if I, you know, could as a professional, I guess. But <clears throat> the cross of Jesus Christ, that's the seminal event. For that is where mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. That's Psalms 85.10. I didn't put the reference down. Do I have it here? Ah, look at that. Righteousness and peace have kissed. That is where God was propitiated. The cross together with Jesus Christ's subsequent resurrection not only proved that God was satisfied with his payment for sin, Christ's payment for sin, Christ who is God, the righteous Lamb of God, spotless, sinless, So it proved not only that God was satisfied with his payment for sin, the resurrection. That's why you cannot uncouple or those two things. They, ha- they go hand in hand. The cross is an event that we look at, and it's easy, you know, because we can, everybody's seen a cross. But the resurrection, you know, the resurrection is just as critical and important, especially, well, both of those, the richness of the gospel, that doesn't, doesn't just have to do with justification. So for another time, when we look at, okay, God entering our world and dealing with us where we are in every Sphere, not just physically, geographically where we are, but spiritually, relationally, you know, mentally, emotionally, the whole package. Um, that salvation, which is what? Connected inexorably to the gospel. It's the gospel where the richness of God, all that he is in terms of his character is amplified, if you will, in the gospel. That's why, we, you know, when it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in fact, I'll just whiz through this because we're, we're going to run out of time. Denise, you shorted me on this clock here. You just want me to keep moving because guess what? I know for, wait a second, what time did I start? Ooh, am I at an hour? Shakes. Okay. Move along, little doggy. Um, so, the cross is where mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. That is where God was propitiated. Um, the subsequent resurrection not only proved that God was satisfied, but also guarantees the promise of eternal life and restores in fact, amps up, if that is possible, creation. These together are the quintessential expressions of God's glory. This good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the core and foundation of all. Every aspect of so great a salvation is hid with Christ in God. To the extent 
men come to know and appreciate the love of God and the gospel of Christ in the entirety of their being, body, soul, and spirit, such that he increases and we decrease. It's about him. It's about him. To that extent, God is glorified in us now and forever. And the richness of this gospel must never be far from our heart, life, and lips. So, I, uh, I think we've come to the end of tonight's um, journey. So, the gospel here now, again, for another time, and I'm going to go back to the diagram quick. Because as I was noodling this, I don't know if you can hear this. So what I did was I took, okay, zero degrees. And again, a mathematician can tell me, um, I assume zero is the same as 360. And so on this dial, on the diagram, think in terms of uh, an analog watch, not a digital one. Or a compass, maybe is better. And so then you have 90 degrees, 180, 270, right? And then, you know, we have different points on the dial. Now, had we, like I wanted to, gone to one, Psalm 139, among other portions, I would have made a um, connection to the fact that, all right, each of these seminal moments, we have other people that, that have lived in, as I mentioned, their era, their epic, their age, whatever. And then we have the cross, and then we have post-cross, and we have people, again, different time, different place. But regardless of time and place, so here we are somewhere for such a time as this probably closer to at least most fundamental Bible teachers think. Can't keep going this way for too much longer. Um, Train's leaving the station. The proverbial doo-doo is going to hit the fan, and that's just the way it is. I hope you have uh, plans (laughs) so you don't have to be a part of that mess. So, here we are at such a time as this. It's not just the time. What did we talk about? We talked about how wherever you are on the dial, you could call it the dial of life. But on that sphere, again, 30,000 foot view, Eric, with the attributes he went through, is God omniscient for wherever you are at this time in this place? He was for David. Was he omnipowerful? He was for David. Was he present, ever present, omnipresent? He certainly was for these people. When David was a shepherd boy, yes. When David became king, whole new set of challenges, whole new set of emotions, etc., etc., issues, yes. When David took his eyes off the Lord and had his deal with Bathsheba, Yes. Oh, and guess what? 
he writes about that in Psalms 51. So he knows the Lord in a way intimately. Why? Because he was viewing life through this lens that recognized that regardless of where he was, literally or metaphorically, didn't matter. You're ever, God is omni. You're never going to outstrip. So if you read that Psalm 139, where am I going to go to hide from your presence? If I go to heaven, behold, you're there. If I go to the deepest parts of the earth, or Sheol, I think it says, behold, there are you. There you are. The night is at the day. I can't. You can run, but you can't hide. But it's not a fearful thing. Yes, it is, if, in fact, you don't know him and he's not your shepherd, as pastor's been going through. Yes, then it is. And in fact, relationally, you could have that circle, that dial. I had made the comment to Carol um, that there's a verse uh, I found one similar, and, and um, but you know it says that God do- takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yet it also says that He delights in the death of His saints, of His people. So there is no aspect of the human condition. The relationship is different, though, which is beyond the purview of who God is. So, for example, a lost man or person, they will know the justice, the righteousness, and the justice of God relationally in a way that is the only thing they can really know about God. They may have heard that he is forgiving, that he's merciful, etc. But they have no clue. Why? Because they didn't go through the door. They don't know him. They've never been born again. They're not wired for sound. They're not part of the family. So do you see the omniscience, the omnipresence, everything that is true of God applies to all people, all humanity. However, the relationship that humanity has with those aspects of his person and his work, his character, that depends. That depends. And that's even true as a believer. You think of the natural man or the carnal man and the spiritual man. The relationship, one is the Spirit of God now has to, you know, Hey, hello, wake up. He's getting our attention. That's the convicting work of the Spirit of God. Anyway, so the point is is that um, time does matter. We're here for such a time as this. Another time than this time. Maybe we can unpack it a little bit more. Um, For example, there's body truth that we could apply to this concept. Each one of us, and I'll end with this, if you are a child of God, his words, not mine, what's he done? He has placed you into his body, this motif, which is the bride of Christ, the church, and he has given you a gift. Spiritual gift or gifts, yes. In this locale, in this geography, right? For such a time as this, right here, right now. So 
It's important. It matters. And this is all his deal. It's about him. And he wants to invite us into participating with him in this. Matt and I were talking a little while ago. What's it boiled down to? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Would you just trust me? Can we trust him? What we know then of his character, his attributes, history, what he reveals to us in the word, can we just trust him? Would we do that? That'll help quite a bit. So, uh, we're done. Yeah, we'll have to work on this. um, P.S. I have a postscript here. Man's true value consists in his likeness to God. What gives value to his thoughts, his feelings, and his actions is the extent to which they are inspired by God, the extent to which they express the thought, the will, and the acts of God. Paul Tournier. He who offers to God a second place offers him no place. John Ruskin. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we